So I'm trying to figure out which one of these questions is going to turn into that. Is this yeah. like your favorite color? <laughs> Things you're afraid of? <laughs> favorite color is brown. I don't know. No, no. I, I, like I said, I haven't found a way of, of shoehorning it in yet. This is the genius idea that turned out to be unoriginal. I had a genius idea to have a podcast for an entire year so I can crowbar this <laughs> <laughs> stupid anecdote into a story. User error 78. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back, and we've got some more hashtag ask error questions for you. And remember, you can ask those on Twitter or in the Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group, or you can just email us via the contact page, error.show slash contact. Just use the hashtag ask error, and the questions can be about anything you like. So the first one, would the web and internet be better or worse if the concept of copy and paste had never been invented? I'm going to say better. I'm going to say better all around. And I'm going to say that you probably can't think of a single thing that wouldn't end up being better by people inventing other things than copy and paste. How would you duplicate text without copy and paste? By hand, writing it out? No, not necessarily. Then you'd just have like some kind of little share thing. And then it would be like, oh, well, not only can I copy and paste this text to wherever else I want to send it, but I can also do a whole bunch of other cool stuff with it. Because now we're thinking of like extending the text as an object instead of just like copy paste. I'm more offended by the fact that people use the phrase cut and paste rather than copy and paste. That just irritates the shit out of me. Every single time I hear someone say cut and paste, oh, just cut and paste it off the web. No, I'm not going to remove it from the web and paste it into my document. I will copy and paste it. Thank you very much. It just irrationally annoys me. But (laughs) going back to your question, uh, well, copy and paste predates the web by some margin. Uh, It's not a thing that was invented for the web. And it's not a thing that was invented for computers. So, like, if you go back before computers, would humanity be worse if it wasn't possible for people who were doing manuscripts to be able to cut pieces of paper with words out and and stick them back in different parts of the page? Would would we have books with more errors in them or magazines with more errors or newspapers with more errors in them if people couldn't cut and paste text around at risk of being pedantic we're talking about copy and paste not cut and paste and (laughs) the concept of copy and paste did not predate the computer (laughs) yeah wow well to be fair sometimes i just select it and then drag it to the new uh bit where i want it rather than actually doing control x and control v well that's just like cut and paste 2.0 that's not (laughs) it's the same thing i love the idea of Joe copy and pasting a paragraph and then going to the other one and then deleting each character individually like backspace. Holding down the backspace, yeah. Not even holding it down, like tapping it each time <laughs> for all a paragraph. Is that because he runs XFCE, so that's all it's capable of? Oh, yes. Very funny, yes. No, I do sometimes copy and paste and then go, oh, shit, I should have cut and pasted that and then have to delete it. So uh, I do that with just by selecting it and deleting it, though, thankfully. But I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, just copy pasta and just how quickly things can spread because you can just cut and, well, copy and paste a huge chunk of text and stuff. That surely would be better without it. But then my life would be a hell of a lot harder without copy and paste. I feel like we'd invent so many better ways to do things like attribution instead of like being able to just rip off other people's stuff all the time that it would be like, oh, well, we'll have a better way to link to what the original was or I don't know. It just seems like we'd come up with better solutions. Mm. 
I think you're, it sounds to me like you want the thing where you sometimes copy off of a web page and a bit of JavaScript appends oh, like no. a suffix <laughs> on the end. This was copy and pasted from the Daily Mail. <laughs> like, no. Okay, I take it back. Number of times I've seen people do that in IRC in the past where, you know, you hit paste and it, that's it. It's gone. And there's like 20 lines of garbage JavaScript that lands from some web page. Um, I don't know. I, I think. I asked my daughter this question earlier, and uh, I, you can pretty much guess what her answer would, would be in that copy and paste is essential because she wouldn't be able to do her homework if <laughs> by <laughs> copy, copying stuff off Wikipedia. Yeah, do you expect me to type it out manually <laughs> from Wikipedia? Right, exactly. And equally, a software developer who goes on Stack Exchange and copy and paste chunks. Like, basically, all of the code I've ever written is a cut and shut of lots of other pieces of code from other people. Yeah, every website I've ever put together, same. Right. And so those things wouldn't exist if copy and paste. I mean, I, I guess I could have probably typed it from scratch. And I know originally in the early 80s, I certainly did type stuff from scratch. But as soon as copy and paste arrived, it accelerated things, I think, surely. Can we all agree on one thing, though? And that is if you're going to copy and paste a link to someone, you take all the shit off the end after the question mark and all the UTM equals and all that shit. I put it through a URL shortener so that I can track whether they won't do it or not. <laughs> oh, dear. I guess it depends on whether you're the one who wants to propagate that UTM stuff or not, right? Like if, if it's your link. Well, yeah, if it's to your project or whatever, fair enough. But if you're just copying a news article link or whatever, then I think it's discourteous to not remove all the shit after it. Or when people send me stuff off Amazon and they just don't think to remove all of that just identifying tracking shit afterwards. Yeah, unless I'm being lazier in a big hurry, I usually chop all that crap off i'm a dick in that if uh i see someone share something on twitter and it looks like a product i might want to buy i will unpack the short url and strip out <laughs> their tag that they get uh revenue for and i'll paste Aww. it without the tag <laughs> in, in the browser i just unless there's someone i like uh i because because i know that if it's an amazon link for like 24 hours, as I understand it, for 24 hours after I buy something, everything I buy, a slice of the revenue is going to go to that person. No, fuck that guy. I use Amazon all the time. I'm not giving them a slice of just because I once clicked a link off their Twitter account. No, no, you're not getting my, my click through. Not at all. Yeah, but that's such a easy and free way to support people. Like if you like someone's YouTube videos or whatever. Yeah, that's evil, man. Right. but I, And if I want to support someone, sure, I'll click their link. But the vast majority, when I just see a random link go by and there's an image of a thing that I think I might want, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just strip it down to the bare minimum. That might be the most heinous thing I've ever heard you say that you do on a regular basis. <laughs> Brilliant. And last week, you talked about driving with your eyes closed. <laughs> <laughs> What are you afraid of? I've got a couple, uh, but probably the thing I'm most afraid of is dying and my children finding the body. <laughs> I knew it was going to be death. I knew you go straight to that. <laughs> no, well, I don't, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm just afraid of like some calamity or heart attack or, or, you know, in bed and the kids come and go, Oh, dad, can you take me to school? And I'm dead, right? That. 
that would be awful for them and traumatic for them. And I would not wish that on them. And I know, you know, a lot of children outlive their parents because the nat- that's the natural order of life. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just don't like the idea of them finding, finding me. I wouldn't want them to see me like that. Yeah. They open their wardrobe and there you are, orange in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I am afraid of death, but uh, I think I must have said this before that like my biggest fear is the world carrying on without me. Um, so yeah, but I was thinking more kind of lightheartedly, uh, spiders and heights is what I'm afraid of as well. How does the uh, of being afraid of spiders manifest itself in the UK, where no spider can kill you and they're all tiny and you are a humongous human being? I am enormous. I don't know. It's like supposedly elephants are scared of mice. I don't know if that's true. I always heard it as a kid. It's it's just for sound evolutionary reasons, I think. Like where where we evolved, there were lots of venomous spiders. And so it's just like baked into my DNA to be shit scared of them. Yeah, I don't care for spiders either. And like particularly nasty bugs. Like there's some bugs that are nice, like butterflies, right? But like roaches and crap and it's like I don't know you know something pops out from behind a trash can and you're just like ah get out of my face (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay there's certain bugs I'm not a particular fan of um but I wouldn't say I'm afraid of um I like stag beetles used to be a thing in the summers like when you're out on your bike and this big stag beetle comes flying towards your face is a pretty scary prospect um at the age of like five or ten so yeah I, i'm not not a fan of those i wouldn't say i was afraid of them um must be tricky for you being afraid of heights joe <laughs> ha 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 i'm not afraid of being six foot something above the ground but if if ever i'm like on the side of a cliff and look over i get this horrible feeling and just uh, uh, that again is perfectly sound evolutionary thinking i think i don't know it just it seems perfectly natural to be afraid of heights to respect heights and not you know go climbing up bloody mountains with no ropes and shit you're not one of those people that feels the call of the void when you stand on the edge and you're like jump no i'm like the complete opposite my instinct is just get away from the edge before it crumbles and i fall off i know that those people exist because i've heard people say that but i i don't know how you could ever feel like that that's crazy to me but it's kind of good in a way because roller coasters I find very thrilling because I'm scared of it, but I also know rationally that I'm perfectly safe or relatively so. Then I, I can almost like get off on that fear and that adrenaline rush. And, you know, Space Mountain, I remember coming off that just shaking. <laughs> and it was just amazing. So uh, my other one was heights as well. But I get the fear of heights not just in real life, like going near the edge of a car park and like looking over the edge of the car park or, um, parking lot is the (laughs) parking lot. Yes. Multi-story car park. Yes. A multi-story car park. Uh, and looking over the edge will, will freak me out, but I get the same thing playing video games where the character is high up and I get the same shivers. Like if I look over the edge of a building in a video game, if the graphics are good, like I will get the same kind of feeling and the same thing, like watching films and TV and stuff where characters get close to the edge of a building, it'll freak me out. Even though I'm not there, I think I have a slightly overactive 
um, imagination and empathy, and I put myself in the other person's position far too easily. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like I have that when you're watching those videos of stupid young lads doing parkour and stuff where they're just ridiculously high up and, and jumping across buildings, and often it'll, they'll wear like a POV cam, and it's just that makes my stomach go as well. Mm-hmm. As completely irrational it is, I think that the thing that really freaks me out the most is like ghosts and possessions and demons and crap. What? Yeah, like just like the idea of like, there's nothing you could do to stop a ghost. If a ghost came out of somewhere, like you're dead, man. You can't punch a ghost. You can't shoot a ghost. Like you're dead. You can fend off zombies. You can't fend off ghosts. Ghosts are the apex predator. They are the don't exist predator. I thought we'd been over this a couple of weeks ago. But if they did exist, how scary would that be? Well, it would be terrifying. But given that they don't exist, it's not terrifying, surely. Or imagine like a loved one being possessed by a demon. Like, what are you going to do about that? I don't know. Holy water, priest. I don't know. Stuff freaks me out. Well, along those lines, I do sometimes, if I can't sleep, find myself looking over into the room and just thinking, what if there's an alien standing there? And like, or if I'm not looking out into the room, I've got my eyes closed. What if there's an alien looking at me right now? And then I have to open my eyes to check that there isn't one. Because you never know. I'm pretty sure an alien could get into my flat without me realizing. Uh, how, how do you get to sleep then? Because obviously you look and then there isn't one. And then you close your eyes. And then does your brain go, yeah, but what if there was? And then you open your eyes again, and then you close them. Well, you know, I don't get obsessed with it, but, you know, two or three times I look, and then it's like, no, don't be silly. What are you doing? And you wake up with weird marks and bruises all over your body, seeing an owl. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Is it time to stop ignoring the vast, silent majority of Linux users? And by this, I mean... People who listen to this show and the other Jupiter Broadcasting shows and and Linux podcasts generally or watch YouTube videos about it or subscribe to magazines about it or go on Reddit, r slash Linux, they are the minority of Linux users. By far, the vast majority of them do not engage with any of that kind of stuff and they just use Linux every day and get on with it. But because the other people are vocal and engaged it seems like they get all the attention. And I'm wondering, should we consider more the kind of people who we don't hear from? Well, this is tricky for two uh, two reasons. One is they are silent. Uh, and so that it is difficult to, um, you know, cast your net and uh, listen to the people who aren't speaking. Um that that's that's tricky and because most linux distributions don't have the same kind of uh intrusive metrics and statistics gathering stuff that other operating systems do it's hard to know how people are using the software so for example android uh, and ios know where their users are and know exactly how many applications they have installed and probably also know exactly how long each application is open and so on and so on and so on so they have very detailed data on their user base without the user base actually getting involved or contributing in inverted commas all they've done is tick a box that says i agree at some point in the past and they have all this data and we don't have that so this silent majority 
it's very difficult for us to reach out to. Um, we, we do like from Ubuntu's point of view, we do get contact from people who are not necessarily engaged. And that can be just via social media or you know, email. We get written, le- handwritten letters from some of our users. So we do get some of that, but it, it's actually really difficult to do. Yeah, I kind of feel like that it's hard to figure out what the silent majority wants to say, but the easy thing to do is to put the brakes on the loud minority. And I think something that we make pretty clear is that our policy when it comes to user feedback is that we don't just implement user suggestions, we listen to what their problems are. And oftentimes that requires like working with people to figure out like what is the thing that's really bugging you? Because they always want to tell you what their ideas are, but they they won't always give you what the actual underlying issue is. So that's kind of part of our, our design process is not just taking a vote of what everybody thinks they want. It's like, okay, what problems are these people facing? And then let's talk about potential solutions for those problems. Right. And we've certainly done some user testing in the, in the London office where we've, you know, bopped people on the head and dragged them in the office from the street. And these are not technical people. These are like randos that we, we pull in and stick them in front of a computer, record everything that's on the screen, record their face, record this, the, the actions they do with the mouse and the keyboard and ask them to do some stuff. Um, like, you know, get some photos off a digital camera or, uh, download a particular piece of software or, you know, whatever normal things normal people do with devices. And that's super fascinating to see the user frustration when they can't do something and also super valuable when you see them succeed at something. But it's super expensive to do and like super time consuming to have like multiple people set this thing up and monitor it and, you know, get people in who've never seen your product before. It's, it's all really hard to do that kind of stuff, but that's only one part of the story. But yeah, that's, that's something we've tried to do in order to test specific features. But you do have some metrics of how many users you have. I mean, they, they might not be as precise as some of the other operating systems, but you can see the trends of how many people are using it and sticking with it to some extent, don't you? Right. We, I mean, we have a good idea of how many users, um, a good handle on how many users we have, but that doesn't actually tell you um, about the problems they're having with their Canon printer, or it doesn't tell you whether their screen is the wrong resolution. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you whether they're having problems connecting to the internet. You know, there's, there's a whole load of stuff that we have no idea about. We just don't have the visibility on. And I don't think we ever will. Um, and that's difficult. And, and it, and a lot of the time it is just listening to people and going out of your way to go outside the bubble. And some of the community people in the Ubuntu project go to events that are completely non-technical, like the French loco team go to music festivals and they pop up a little tent, um, an Ubuntu tent where people can get like selfie photos taken and get them printed out or sent, you know, online or whatever. Um, but they, they're, they're at a place where in commas normals are the, you know, the great unwashed <laughs> the, and it's interesting to listen to what those people say because they're, they're not 
necessarily the same people who will be translating your product or providing patches or reporting bugs. These are people who just use a computer as a tool. And so listening to people is a, is a very valuable skill as well. Is that properly documented then? What? Listening to people? Well, what people say, what these normal people say, is it recorded or written down or, or what? Uh, it depends. It depends who does it. Uh, in some cases, you know, people write reports when they go to an event. Uh, internally, we, we, we have this concept of trip reports. So if someone goes to an event and they have particularly interesting conversations about our software, um, and some of that will turn into changes to the product. Other times it won't. Like if we get a particular um, issue that people talk about, you know, a, f- a thing that's frustrating with one of our products and people feel the need to tell us about it, then it's clearly frustrating enough that someone has walked up to you and told you about it. Then, yeah, sure, it gets noted and it gets passed up the tree and it may or may not influence the next design iteration of that product. Yeah, and then seven years later, you move the buttons back to where they should be. <laughs> I think that um, we try to do as much as possible to convert some of the discussions that we're seeing into issues on GitHub. Um, like recently, we had noticed, you know, hey, people seem to be confused about the expectations of when they should expect updates to come through on apps that are coming from the Ubuntu repos. And there's not really a clear understanding there of how the update cycle works. And so it's like, okay, you know, they're, they're not filing issues, but they're tweeting or they're posting on Reddit or, or whatever. And, and we've kind of collected this general vibe of like people are encountering this issue where they don't understand how this thing works and they're upset about it. And so we need to come together and create a new feature or something to figure out how do we solve this problem for these people. And like what we ended up doing was that uh, we made it way easier to install Flatpaks. Um, but then we also kind of add this little dialogue when you get something from the Ubuntu repos that it's like, hey, just so you know, like this package may not get feature updates. Like, you know, it's just part of like how the release cycle works. And then, of course, the very loud minority gets angry and they say, why are you, you know, making it seem like these packages from the Ubuntu repos are untrustworthy or whatever. But these are real issues that the people that aren't so loud, that aren't participating in issue trackers are running into every day when they try to use the system. And, and it makes it the experience frustrating for them. And and so we have to kind of focus on on those frustrating experiences and not necessarily the things that very loud people are concerned about. Yeah, I mean, the the metrics that we have have given us some useful insight, like the number of people who sit on old LTS releases, like that, that is useful information. We have no idea what they're doing with those systems. Like, we don't know if they're, uh, you know, doing CAD or just listening to music or just using it to manage their photos. We've got no idea what they're doing with their computer. All we know is out there somewhere is some hundreds of thousands or millions of people with a particular release of Ubuntu. And that actually in and of itself is interesting. There was a a thread that was started recently on the community discourse, which was what should we do about these people who are on old unsupported versions? And there was an interesting conversation that kicked off about, well, you know, we could do these technical things like, you know, shove a pop-up in the face that says, Hey, you should really upgrade because you're not getting any security updates. 
But then someone else was like, well, some of these people have pretty much no internet connection. So the likelihood of them upgrading is nil because they've got such a ropey internet connection. They're, they're not going to download 800 meg of data just to get them up to date to the next version. Their system is working. And so you've got to try and put yourself in the mind of people who are just using a device. And if you, if you ever sit on a train and watch, I, I'm a big fan of people watching on trains and I, I love watching how people use their devices and seeing how people use mostly mobile phones. And I find it fascinating because it's completely different from the way I would use a device. And I find it fascinating that people in the tech industry often, and especially Linux users, have this perception that I use a computer like this, everybody uses a computer like this. And I use a phone like this, everybody uses a phone like this. And they, for some reason, these people who are the loud voices have some level of incredulity that people use computers and mobile devices in different ways. And I think that's something we miss is the observation of other, the way other people use their systems, not like spying on them, but just like noticing. And I think listening and noticing are two skills that have kind of gone out the window with some of these vocal minority. It's funny you say that because I remember watching someone use GNOME who has been using GNOME for a long, long time and just watching this person just fail to do basic stuff and get really frustrated with it and just do exactly what happens to me with GNOME. And it just totally backed up my sense that I'm doing it right by having a traditional paradigm and GNOME is just not how people should be using computers. Very scientific, I know, one person, but still, it stuck with me. I definitely think there's there's different kinds of users, right? Like there's if if your expectation is that the kinds of people are using your operating system are, are people that are used to using desktop operating systems and doing things in a way that's familiar to how previous ones have worked is is really good for them. But if your expectation is that the people who are using your operating system are people who have never, maybe never had a desktop computer before, then you have to approach things in a different way. Like if there are people that are coming from, you know, their, their first computer was a mobile device and this is their first serious like work computer, you have to think about things from a different perspective because they're used to things working in a very different way. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this is why I get frustrated with, uh, vocal people in the Linux community who just tell me that everyone uses apt-get or everyone, I just install Synaptic and that's how I get all my software. And it's like, ah, oh, geez, have you used a mobile phone recently? Have you, like nobody uses a, an application like Synaptic. That's not, that's not the paradigm that people are used to. And exactly as Dan says, if people are coming to your, you know, full fat desktop operating system from a mobile device, then they're going to be used to smacking a button which is a picture of the application they want pressing install and very soon afterwards they have that thing available to run and not not some weird esoteric uh, mashup of commands in a terminal like i'm not i'm not saying the terminal is a bad thing but the usage pattern for non-technical people is light years away from what the vocal nerd Linux elitist uh, types will have you believe it is. 
What's your favorite color and why? Are we supposed to answer the traditional way with these questions on this show, which is, I'm not 12, I don't have a favorite color. <laughs> you must have a favorite color, come on. I was just thinking about at uh, Linux Fest Northwest when somebody asked to rate the usability of Ubuntu on a scale of 1 to 10, and the room just went silent, and Alan just throws out a random number. I was like, I don't know. What does this matter? Like, here's a number. That's kind of what I feel like. <laughs> like I don't know, fucking blue. <laughs> so you you look at a color wheel and they're just all as aesthetically pleasing to you. I think that maybe this is because of my background, but I feel like they have different purposes. And, and so it doesn't feel like it makes sense to have a favorite one. Like they're used for different things. Depends on what time of year it is or in what context or like, is it for clothing? Is it for a candle? Is it for food? Like, you know. Right. Blue food. Absolutely. Uh, slush puppies. Blue flavor. I can't remember what you call them in America. Blueberry, I think. Um, I I meant slush poppy. Oh. <laughs> uh, Is that like shaved ice? Yeah. My gut reaction when, you know, if someone says, what's your favorite color? I would probably pick, you know, something blue or black or something dark. But then uh, I, I feel similarly, I just don't have one. I, I, there's nothing that makes me think... I really like that color and I really want to have lots of things of that color. And I know there are some people who are massive fans of color pink who have like, you know, every, every, everything on their, their desk is colored pink. And there are, you know, things on their screen and the computer and their mouse, they're all pink. And that's fine if they enjoy that environment. But I, look around and most things on my desk are black but that's not necessarily out of choice uh, think pads don't come in any other color <laughs> all right say you were going to buy some acoustic foam panels and all the different colors were the same price and so you could just get whatever color you wanted what would you go for well i did buy some acoustic panels and i bought the cheapest ones and they were black and i didn't I didn't actually know they came in different colors. I just bought whichever were the cheapest one, that one, they're black. Okay, that'll do. Right. But had there been a choice of colors for the cheapest one, what would you have gone for? So I've watched a couple of YouTube videos recently, and in the background, I've seen people have the colored variants, and they look very much like chessboards on the wall. So the traditional color pattern of a chessboard where it's black and white alternating or some primary color and white or primary color and black might look nice. But I am not responsible for any design decisions in the house that I live in. That all goes to my wife because I can't be trusted to make those kind of decisions. So if I did buy them, it might be that they would only ever go on a wall in a room that I'm the only person who works in. Let's forget colors. What about textures? I feel like textures are so much more interesting. Favorite color, who cares? Like, do you like wood? Do you like stone? Like, what's your favorite texture? I like that um, that kind of almost rubbery feeling that some old electronics had. Unfortunately, it's gone all mushy now. But there are some laptops that have had like a rubberized coating on and some pdas and phones that have had like a a rubbery coating i really like that in my hand but i also like glass i like the oneplus no the 
iPhone 4S that had a glass front and glass back and metal around the rim. That was like the pinnacle of Apple phone engineering. I loved feeling that in my hand. That's like the best phone ever designed. I love that phone. Yes, I agree. So black, glass, and maybe rubber. Those like, that's it. I'm I'm done. Uh, So in answer to your question, Joe, yeah, just black, black everything. (laughs) Well, most of my clothes are black, so I should probably say that, but I'm going to say I have two, purple and uh, sort of aquamarine, turquoise type color. Do you mean aubergine? No, slightly, slightly redder than aubergine. Why do you like those colors? Well, I didn't know until I looked into uh, color theory and color wheels and stuff. And I think it's because of where they sit relative to red and green on the color wheel. They're kind of, um, one's next to green and one's next to red. And so they, they kind of have a similar place. And I also like orange. So I think it's just, I like tertiary colors. So there are a couple of colors that immediately provoke nostalgic feelings in me. Um, one of them is magenta because it was one of the only colors that the Sinclair Spectrum could do. <laughs> and so magenta and cyan and the bright magenta and bright cyan, uh, two of like the 15 colors that the Spectrum could do, those stick in my mind. And whenever I see something that is that vivid magenta or cyan, I really, I really appreciate that. Right. So we've drilled down and we found your favorite color. Well done. Not favorite. It's a color that has triggered nostalgia, but I wouldn't say it was my favorite. I'm never going to buy something which is magenta colored. I feel like when I, f- I first started buying my own furniture that I totally went for like flat black everything. But like as time goes on, I think that I'm getting into more like lighter and more textured things. They're like, I love butcher block. Like butcher block is such a cool texture. And I, w- I would love like all the countertops to be butcher block. Is that like marble? No, it's uh, it's just like really bright wood, but it's like different kind of like different stains, I guess. That, uh, yeah. If you don't know what it is, I guess you could just look up what butcher block looks like. I'm looking at it now, and there's it's just different types of wood, essentially. Kind of, yeah, but it's like bright, and I don't know. There's something about it that feels like kind of handmade or something, and especially in the kitchen, if you're just like rolling out dough on it or something. I don't know. I just, I like that texture a lot. And I like the brightness and, and I think I like that more than just like a color is like these kind of bright wood feels or like warmness that you get from these natural textures. Do not get a kitchen countertop that is made of it. That's my advice. Cause it's a pain in the ass. You have to oil it all the time. If it gets wet, you have to dry it immediately. Otherwise it stains. Um, yeah, just don't bother. Get some sort of harder, easier to clean surface is my advice. Favorite colors and kitchen advice. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had a genius idea that turned out to be spectacularly unoriginal? So in the, I don't know, fifth or grade or something like that, um, and there was a science lesson. They were talking about like inertia, right? And they're like, oh, you know, an object in motion stays in motion. And I was like, guys, if it's not moving, it'll also stay not moving. This is incredible. And they're like, that's still inertia. <laughs> I've had ideas for apps and games and stuff. And 
wanted to develop them and started planning them out and then do a bit of research and find other people have been very successful at making those very specific the way I've designed it, applications or games. And that's kind of deflated me a little bit. Or I've found either they've been successful or someone has developed exactly that thing and it was wildly unsuccessful and got panned by everyone because it was a stupid idea. So I've had ideas that sounded really good and somebody else has certainly leveraged that and done that. And then I've had ideas which everyone has agreed was the dumbest idea ever. So yeah, I've had both, but I'm not sure I would class any of them as genius. So there's none that you thought were really amazing. Well, at the point when it, the, the seed germinates and you start to flesh out the idea, sometimes you can come up with an idea that is just, Oh, that is, that's brilliant. We should totally do that. And then someone knocks the wind out of it or you knock the wind out of it yourself by just Googling for five minutes and realize, Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Someone already did that. I'm an idiot. I think the trouble is that humans are just incredibly predictable and not that creative at all. Like nobody is. Everybody thinks that everybody came up with pyramids has to be like some alien conspiracy and not that just like people are really super unoriginal and we all do the same shit all the time. Yeah. I just think like creativity is a hoax. Nothing's original. Well, Twitter will teach you that. If ever you come up with some funny joke, just search Twitter for it. The search function in Twitter is actually amazing. And you'll just see how many people five years ago came up with that hilarious wordplay or, you know, hilarious idea. Sometimes I just tweet it anyway and just say, fuck it. But sometimes I think, damn it, I thought that was a genius wordplay. But I think my worst one has to be, I came up with this genius idea, right? And it's going to solve the water crisis in like drought ridden countries especially anywhere that is even vaguely close to the sea or a saltwater lake and that is you build like a perspex tank that's black on the bottom and really shallow but really uh, big and wide and uh, but first you dig a, a kind of tank underneath the ground and so you fill it with salt water and then that evaporates goes uh, up through a, a pipe and then down in and um, condenses into fresh water that you can drink in the tank. Um, yeah, it turns out that that basic idea has been around since at least the ancient Greeks, if not before. But for months, I was just convinced that it was just genius. I think that's why history is so important is to realize like how small and uncreative we really are and how easy it is to repeat mistakes and continue to discover the same things over and over and over again. But if you just like take time to see what the people who have come before did, then you can actually start to build on the shoulders of those giants, right? But Otherwise, we just we keep spinning our wheels. We'll keep doing the same things. Yeah, I think you could take that solar desalination idea and perfect it, but you wouldn't have invented it. I do quite enjoy seeing other people's ideas that are, you might think, if you're naive and not don't have a technical background, you might think, oh, wow, yeah, that's a great idea. I quite like seeing those people being torn a new asshole by someone who <laughs> actually has skills in that area. Like when a 
Kickstarter campaign goes live, or more often an Indiegogo campaign goes live with some ludicrous perpetual motion or infinite energy or water purification system uh, goes live on Indiegogo. And then there's two or three YouTubers who will absolutely rip it apart and explain in excruciating, painful detail why this will never work. And then you go back and look at the crowdfunding campaign and see all the poor saps who've put money towards these things and then you know, revisit in two years time and they never delivered. Um, and uh, that's, it's terrible of me to do that. And it's terrible of me to have this perception that, haha, suckers, you all fell for it. But there really is one board every minute. And I, I don't feel so bad that I'm not one of them. I feel like that's something that happens a lot where people will come to us and say like, oh, why don't you just do this thing? And then mm. they don't realize like, well, we've either tried that before and it turned out it was a terrible idea or it's not as simple as it sounds like it would be or that like the cost it would be to do that thing would be just ridiculous compared to doing something much simpler. And it's funny, but yeah, just like not having the insight into how those things work. Like you can come up with any number of grand ideas. And then once you actually start to try to implement them, then you realize like, oh, this is a, this was a terrible idea. Yeah. I mean, the old adage, ideas are like assholes. Everyone's got one. And you don't need to be a genius to come up with an idea, but to actually implement it, you know, you've got to have, um, it's got to be a really decent idea and you've got to have some effort made to make it come to fruition. We, we have the same problem. And part of this is you get a new generation of people who've not been around for the history of like desktop Linux, if you're just thinking about desktop Linux, and they've only been around a short while, and they come up with this revolutionary idea, and you guys should do this thing. This is the solution to your problem. And it's like, well, actually, no, <laughs> because of these long-winded reasons why, because we've tried that, and that didn't work, and exactly as you said, Dan, and it's, it's a bit sad, because people are quite enthusiastic, and then when you rain on their parade because their idea is actually f deeply flawed it can push them away from your project you know they they come to you all excitable and full of ideas it's like well you know you try it go away and try it try that thing yourself and come back to me when you've got success no 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 you should do that well no okay <laughs> maybe we're too old and and uh, jaded with the whole thing um uh, yeah, and I worry about that. I do worry sometimes that, you know, a young uh, person who's only just started on the project uh, starts coming up with these ideas. And I don't want to crush their hopes and dreams. But equally, I don't want them to waste time doing stuff that we've been doing for years and years and years. It's a bit like my perpetual motion machine that I came up with. And so I bought some magnets and I built it out of Lego and it didn't work. And I thought, hmm, okay, how can I improve this idea? I need to do this, I need to do that. And then it dawned on me, uh, yeah, I've uh, invented a motor. <laughs> you just got to hide a battery underneath uh, where no one will see it. <laughs> yeah, everything will be fine. Yeah.